satellite technology is the indian in the cupboard it's edwin davis how's it going sir all right good i had forgotten about the film the indian in the cupboard until right this second and now i'm being uh overrun by a kind of proustian rush of the one time i saw that film <laughs> <laughs> yeah proustian rush like that great band uh got their first <laughs> album somewhere it's it's fantastic we're doing uh one of them artist profiles that we are uh, want to do what number are we at now is this six or seven uh, I think it's six. Okay. No, seven. Yeah. Seven. Yeah. So this one and then three more and then we'll be over and done with, we promise. But we're going to talk about, for the first time, someone who's not an actor or a director. We're going to talk about uh, someone who you perhaps might not think would be immediately interested in. But that's why we want to talk about them, because they're a fascinating character. We're talking about uh, Jerry Bruckheimer. Why do you think we would choose to talk about such a man, Ed? Uh, because we were trying to think of a producer, a role that we hadn't really discussed before, uh, but, you know, kind of a crucial one. And he is, if he's not the most successful producer of all time, he's certainly very high up there. Mm. So I think, uh, and, and he is someone who, uh, in his own way, has kind of redefined several genres. He is someone who, in a rarity for a producer, actually has kind of a style of his own that you can see certainly along a lot of these films in the 90s and yeah so i think that he's he's someone who uh, is kind of a, a unique figure amongst producers so it's interesting it could be interesting to uh, chat about mm. i think that we probably should for the ship munchers who listen to this perhaps discuss what a producer does because it's not immediately obvious if you're kind of not particularly kind of film savvy but it also doesn't help that what a producer does is, is, is a little bit kind of fluid and not as concrete as, like, say, director of photography or, you know, production designer. Because sometimes you see people with producer credits who haven't really done anything. But then other times you get producers who are incredibly hands-on with the production. But really, they're, they're the people, in, in essence, on, on paper, the people who make the film happen. Yeah, and it's also, in terms of defining it, it's also a film, a role that has probably changed more than any other over the history of Hollywood, because back in the early days of, 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 of Hollywood cinema, you kind of have producers who were essentially just people who worked directly for a studio that weren't really independent producers, and they were in charge of kind of assembling films in-house. And then when you get the uh, breakup of the studio system or the breakup of the monopolies, you get sort of getting independent producers whose role is essentially to put together a package. You know, they they find a script, they find a director, they find, you know, cast members who maybe can sell it and then they shop it around to studios. And uh, Jerry Bruckheimer has, he kind of fits more into that second mould. He has had uh, very lucrative uh, deals with studios like Disney and uh, I think Paramount for a very long period of time. But he is someone who has never, as as far as I know, never been directly employed by a studio. He's someone who just kind of works with them. Mm. In in kind of simple terms, producer is normally the first one on the film and the last one off. Yes, they will they will come to a project whether it's something they've developed themselves or whether 
it's you know someone's hawking around a script that's uh, you know on spec. They will take that and then they will put the film together. They will employ the best people and get the film made for what they want to do. You get some some producers who are uh, very kind of uh, business savvy and uh, uh, will kind of be able to make their money as as you know and make the investors their money back as kind of efficiently as possible. Then you get a lot of producers who are kind of fairly hands on creatively and understand what a director wants and and you know works with them to uh, kind of achieve a kind of an artistic goal where does bruckheimer fall on that scale he is someone who has a a fairly strong sense of what he wants from a film so he is someone who has a a creative flair he's someone who comes from uh, advertising and he was a, he was a cinephile growing up and then he he moved into making commercials before he decided to become a, a producer in hollywood so he's someone who knows how to make films and how the, the, the actual process of creating a film happens. But he also is someone who's incredibly business savvy as mm-hmm. evidenced by the fact that he has made multiple films that uh, were the kind of highest grossing films of their respective years, which is not something that uh, a lot of people can claim uh, who aren't Steven Spielberg. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get right into it. Let's talk about the film which we could probably consider to be Mr. Bruckheimer's breakthrough. What is it, Ed? It is American Gigolo, directed by Paul Schrader. His business is pleasure. Hello, Judy. You're a very sexy lady. Very good looking woman. You can like me. You can tell. We have a lot of fun. He is the American Gigolo. Hello, girls. that because if you think about Jerry Bruckheimer and this is going to trip us up again later in the podcast uh, you think of kind of crash bang wallop lots of filters lots of explosions girls kind of running around with their knockers out and yeah not American Gigolo which is uh, for all intents and purposes a marvellous film yeah I think uh, certainly in the case of if you look at his early career there's not a huge amount of cohesion to it you know his first I think the first four or five films he worked on were all directed by the director Dick Richards who mm. is kind of a forgotten figure now is probably most notable for his being His name was Richard Richards. Yes. Um, wow. Fair play. He and he was not a relative of the Fantastic 4. Nah. He he's probably most notable now as being the original director of Tootsie who uh, mm-hmm. was uh, taken off the project at an early stage and ended up being a producer and ended up being uh, Oscar-nominated for it. Jerry Bruckheimer, when he came to Hollywood, having left a lucrative advertising job, just kind of started working for uh, in a kind of low-budget, independent area, uh, area. And then after making a few of those films, kind of ended up teaming up with Paul Schrader for this. And I think if you understand his background as someone who you know loved going to the cinema on weekends and was a huge fan of things like the 400 blows him working with Paul Schrader makes a huge amount of sense because that's a similar that's obviously coming from the appreciating the same work mm-hmm. uh, and maybe you know looking at the films that Paul Schrader had made up until that point or had had co-written and directed uh, he probably looked at him and thought I I want to you know, work with this guy and, and help him get his films made. Mm. Which is kind of something that he doesn't really have much of an interest in doing now, is it, Joe Bruckheimer? His his goal in producing nowadays is more towards starting and maintaining behemoth franchises. 
Mm, but o- over the course of his entire career, I think you do see he will kind of uh, establish working relationships with people who I think he thinks have a similar sensibility to him or he thinks can do the work that he wants. Uh, and as long as those relationships are fruitful and successful, they will work together a lot. And if you look at them over and over again, as soon as one of those films is not successful, he will not work with them again. You know, yeah. he worked with Schrader on on um, American Gigolo and then Cat People, which wasn't a huge hit, never worked with him again. He worked with Michael Bay a lot during the 90s. And then you get to Pearl Harbor, which didn't do that well. And they haven't worked with each other in 15 years. Mm. You know, so even people he had hugely successful uh, relationships with, as soon as that doesn't, you know, come together uh he, he seems to cut them out of his life yeah they're they, they're they're done for we say he he really went to produce on his own after the death of his his kind of long-term producing partner don simpson who uh if anyone ever wants to read a great book about hollywood debauchery i recommend the book high concept about the life of don simpson and uh, some of his kind of huge excesses and peculiar eccentricities you know much about don simpson ed i know that he was uh someone who uh liked a drug or two he loved drugs <laughs> he absolutely loved them thought they were delicious and moorish and he went at them with gay abandon but he also did a lot of weird things like he started another production arm called technical black and it was called technical black because he would only he would only wear black jeans Mm-hmm. And he would only ever wear them once because he said that if you wash them, they would no longer be technically black. Wow, he's yeah. From from what I understand, sounds like a madman. Yeah, uh, he was kind of a, a mad guy. But he, what kind of films did he produce with with Mr. Bruckheimer? And what was their breakthrough kind of collectively? Their 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 combined breakthrough was Flashdance, which came out mm. in 1983 uh, and was a huge hit. You know, uh, massive for an R-rated film made like $90 million, which not a lot of R-rated films did back in uh, 1983. And that started them on a, a incredibly productive uh, and successful partnership for the next 12 years or so until their partnership uh, dissolved because Jay Bruckheimer couldn't put up with Don Simpson shit anymore. Yeah. Uh, and then he died not long afterwards. So, but um, then, then you get things like the Beverly Hills cop films, you get Top Gun, Days of Thunder, you know, these kind of huge uh, Crimson Tide, I think Bad Boys may have been the last one they worked on. I think it was, I'm going to say. Or maybe, no, The Rock. The Rock was the last one they worked on because it's dedicated to to Don Simpson. So, like, these big, big, uh, flashy action films, often kind of very visually kind of reminiscent of uh, advertising and and music videos, very Mm -hmm. heavily focused on the role of uh, music to create mood and atmosphere, uh, it's certainly when they worked with uh, Tony Scott, a lot of great use of fog and uh, mist. And heavy filters. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, a lot of kind of screeching guitar uh, on the soundtrack. Certainly. Yeah. Tom Cruise, yeah. usually. Yeah. Usually, but not always. No. Uh, although Top Gun and Days of Thunder are identical films, just one with a car and one with a plane. Uh, if, you, if you ever watch those two films, they are exactly the same. Beat for beat, practically. Yeah, so that was his breakthrough. And we're going to talk about what's probably considered his oddity. And we're going to take things like American Gigolo out. But we picked the kind of one of his rare examples of going into the genre world, haven't we? 
Yes, we've gone for the 1982 comedy, Young Doctors in Love. A comedy with stripers, strippers, virgins, surgeons. If you plan to remove the appendix, you will have to break the skin. Punks, drunks, dancing, and romancing. You call that sex? Now let's try it again. Not a particularly successful venture. No, the uh, first film directed by Call Me Gary Marshall, uh, <laughs> and it was uh, his rare, his rare, one of his rare dalliances into comedy. I mean, a lot of his films feature comedic moments. Obviously, Beverly Hills Cop is is pretty much a comedy with a bit of action in it, mm-hmm. um, or an action film with a lot of comedy in it, depending on how you slice it. But mm-hmm. He he's only really made two or three pure comedy films, and and Young Docs in Love was one of his first ones. Uh, you know, at, at a time when he was probably just searching around for people to work with to to kind of establish working relationships and to find a foothold. And then later on, he would do uh, Confessions of a Shopaholic, which is mm. even stranger. But um, Young Docs in Love is, is notable for the fact that it was Gary Marshall's first film, and it's also uh, a, a an example of the wave of uh, spoof films that arrived immediately after Airplane became a huge success. Yeah, I have to say I'm not hugely familiar with uh, Young Doctors in Love. Um, what's it spoofing? It's spoofing kind of daytime medical soaps, general hospital, that sort of thing. That uh, stuff is ripe for parody. Yeah, and to give you a sense of just how much of a rip-off of Airplane style it is, it pretty much opens with a uh, the white zone is for loading and unloading joke. Oh man! Um, uh, it's not great. It has a kind of crazy cast. It's got people like um, Taylor Negron in a small role. Obviously, Hector Elizondo because he's in every uh, Gary Marshall film. And it has there are some kind of inspired gags sprinkled around throughout it, but it's mainly just this kind of very broad and and weird. Uh, Michael McKean is uh, one of the main actors in it, uh, and he's in a a pre pre Spinal Tap stab at film stardom and it's sort of thing where you can you can kind of see why an enterprising young producer like jerry brookheimer would would go for this because obviously we've just had airplane and i think airplane 2 may have come out in the time as well two films that certainly the first one was huge you know massive out of the box uh success and uh you can definitely see there was probably a bit of a free- feeding frenzy from people trying to make spoof films that could capitalize on that and for someone who's trying to make their name and has only really got one uh modest hit under their belt at that point in the form of uh american gigolo uh you could see why he would kind of look at a, a trend and try and jump on it mm. he's had kind of a few attempted forays into uh, stuff like horror before we kind of mentioned cat people earlier that now looking at his oeuvre looks like quite an unusual entry in his canon yeah i think the only other one that uh, i can think of was uh from last year where he, he co he produced um uh that one with eric banner where he was like a cop in investigating an exorcism which had like just a super generic name that i can't even pull but yeah it's, it's not a genre that he is he doesn't seem to have a a real affinity for it mm. it's like it's not something that he seems to understand he's more into uh kind of machismo and uh there's not really you know horror isn't really a macho genre no and it's it's also kind of a testament to the fact that his thing is making films that will appeal to as wide an audience as humanly possible 
yes uh, and the horror by its very nature is kind of niche and very rarely breaks over to kind of a big wide audience yeah yeah i think it's at this point we should probably mention that Brockheimer is very unusual and i kind of mentioned this to you the other day that he's very unusual in the sense that you can tell one of his films without even kind of knowing you're watching it. So like, for instance, to prepare for this podcast, I decided I would kind of watch uh, National Treasure 2 uh, just because that's the first Bruckheimer film I saw on Netflix (laughs) that was kind of available. So I put it on in the background whilst I was kind of doing something else. And I was just kind of stunned to think that, well, this sounds like a Jerry Bruckheimer film. And then you look at it and you think, well, that looks like a Jerry Bruckheimer film. It's got the editing rhythm of a Jerry Bruckheimer film. But Jerry Bruckheimer is the fucking producer. And I mentioned to you, like, I can't think of too many producers that have their own kind of indelible stamp on uh, how a film appears. It's, you know, it's a director's medium film. And, you know, you you perhaps in the olden days get an idea that a, a Richard F. Zanuck production would be, you know, a big lavish spectacle. But you wouldn't think that... Uh, you know, their films would be a certain way because it would be the director kind of calling the shots. But with Bruckheimer, you know you're watching a Bruckheimer film and you see other directors and producers aping that style. Yeah, and and when I was thinking about this uh, episode, I thought it was interesting that in my mind, you, you know, from when I was, you know, a kid, I always thought of things like, Conair, The Rock, and Armageddon as being all of a piece. Mm. And, like, there's no real... I mean, like, The Rock and Armageddon obviously directed by the same director, uh, but, you know, there's no reason to lump Conair in there other than the fact that it's by the same producer and it has exactly the same feel as those films. Mm. Uh, and and I think that is a, a real testament that even to, you know, me as, like, a, whatever, 12, 13-year-old, something about those films made me think these are, like, companion pieces to each other. And, you know, there's nothing connecting those ones except for the fact that Jerry Bruckheimer was the driving force behind them. Hmm. It's interesting that Hans Zimmer has kind of indelibly stamped himself on how a Bruckheimer film sounds, even when he's not scoring them. That, like, whoever whoever is scoring them is probably being given the brief, make it sound like Hans Zimmer's done it. Yeah, I think uh, probably one word written on the page is just like bombast, mm. which is probably the main that if you were to uh, describe the cinema of uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, certainly everything from Top Gun onwards is pretty much just uh, wall-to-wall bombast. Mm. Um, it's like cinematic hubris. Mm. Uh, it, everything's kind of big and uh, kind of exaggerated, very kinetic, uh, sometimes very often. Uh, indecipherable. <laughs> um, yes, I have to say that there was there was points of National Treasure too where I didn't really fully understand what on earth was happening. Yeah, I, I was thinking it's, it's quite interesting that uh, Michael Bay and Bruckheimer haven't worked together for fifteen years because I could have sworn that stuff like The Island was a a Jerry Bruckheimer production, and I think one of the things about it that's quite interesting is to think that perhaps Michael Bay learns a lot from him and what we're seeing now with his uh, Terminator, his Terminator, Transformers films is mm. that that's kind of like the the Brookheim style kind of almost reduced down to concentrate. Yeah. Like he's taken all the worst excesses of those, that style 
and just kept pushing it as far as he possibly can. Mm. I also kind of mentioned earlier the, the title of the, the the Don Simpson book being high concept, but Bruckheimer was one of the principal exponents of, of high concept in the 80s when, when high concept was, was at its very peak. For those of you who don't know, high concept is kind of a kind of film idea that if you can wrap up a film as a simple concept rather than you know, a, you know, a sentence or two of explanation of what it's about. I mean, you can't explain Chinatown in a concept, but you can say Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito are twins, mm. or Tom Cruise is a fighter pilot, and that there is literally no more to those films <laughs> than that concept. Whereas you, you probably couldn't explain the Magnificent Ambersons in the same way, but he was one of those people who kind of pushed that through and made it. Uh, you know, that was his bread and butter. And, you know, probably still is. Yeah, you definitely see in some of the films he's he's been behind recently, you know, like the, the Pirates of the Caribbean films are essentially high concept because it's just, uh, you know, a film based on a theme park ride. And that's pretty it's much it. It's just four words is the concept, Pirates of the Caribbean. There's no need to explain it because people know what it is. Yeah, or the uh, the the kind of back to back flops he made in two thousand and ten uh, when he made the Sorcerer's Apprentice and uh, the Prince of Persia: Sand of Time, but back to back, which are both films that feel very much like uh, Brookheimer Productions that uh, just didn't really do very well. Uh, but you know they are both. It's like oh, this is based on a video game and it's about a guy who can travel back in time, or. This is, you know, Nick Cage plays a, a wizard in New York. It's like, mm. there's not a huge amount more to those films than that. Uh, I'd just like to correct myself earlier. Uh, uh, Michael Bay and Joe Brookheimer have worked since together since Pearl Harbor. They worked on Bad Boys too, but they haven't worked together since then. Right, okay. Well, thanks for the clarification, Ed, because I would never have forgiven you uh, <laughs> had, I, had I found that out. Let's talk about Joe Brockheimer's most successful film. What, which of his uh, many box office uh, successes has been the largest? I mentioned it earlier. Uh, it is Pirates of the Caribbean, specifically Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Man's Chest. Do you feel death? Do you feel that dark abyss? All <laughs> your deeds laid bare. All your sins punished. I can offer you an escape. That's the second one, right? Yes, it is, yeah. Also known as the one that's really confusing and really long and quite stupid. Exactly that one, yes. Uh, and also the one that uh, burned up all of the goodwill earned by the first film. Because <laughs> let's not forget, the first film doesn't hold up to too many viewings, but it's a good deal of fun. I it is. Remember, I didn't seem to remember being confused a lot of the time, or wondering what was going on, or like trying to understand like kind of labyrinthine plots that had no reason to be labyrinthine. Yeah, it was a um, it was a, it was a pleasant surprise. Mm, the first given film. it was a film based on a on a theme park ride, but you know all that's down to 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 Johnny Depp, isn't it? We've talked about our frustrations with Johnny Depp before, but that was probably the last last occasion in which uh, he was able to elevate tawdry material through sheer kind of uh, force of personality and uh, you know not one to rest on his laurels he's just done it another four more times with the same the same trick yeah exactly i mean that is a a case of 
a very charismatic actor being given a chance to shine uh, in a way that he never had before. I think mm. that what you can really see there is uh, just a great, uh, a great combination of uh, material and actor where the actor has been given a chance to basically go wild. Like the, there's lots of stories about how Disney executives were terrified about how the, uh, the parts, the, the first parts of the Caribbean film was going to go because they just looked at it and said, you know, what, what the hell is he doing with this perform this really flamboyant and silly performance. And it ended up working better than I think anyone could have suspected. Mm. But the, uh, the fact that it worked was kind of a surprise and, and it, it, you know, it just kind of charmed audiences and became something of a word of mouth hit in that, you know, people saw it and went back and rewatched it and told people that they should go and see it because, hey, that film based on a theme park ride is actually pretty good. And I think the the second one suffers from the fact that they had this huge surprise success and that they rushed in to production famously without having a finished script, deciding to film two se- uh, sequels back to back and then just kind of layering on crazy mythology onto a story that kind of really and, and characters that really couldn't sustain it mm. and what people forget about johnny depp in the first film is that that performance was oscar nominated yeah which uh in uh hindsight is mental and certainly mm, is... in light of what the character became mm. reminds me of when uh Renny zellweger was nominated for bridget jones as well it was like we'll nominate someone who is who we like but is not going to win but just you know that seems mad to me that those two kind of things got nominated for Oscars but anywho as we've discussed before uh you'll never stop being kind of baffled by Oscars it is it the worst of the bunch uh Dead Man's uh I want to keep calling it Dead Man's Shoes but that's actually <laughs> a good film Dead Man's Chest uh is it the worst I can't even remember what happens in the world's end uh, I didn't see the world's end. The second one put me off so much that I. Oh, I saw I saw the pictures, and it was all I remember it being really loud. Uh, is the second one? Is the third one's the one though where they had Ian McShane wander in as Blackbeard, isn't he? No, that's the, the fourth, fourth one. one. I think Jesus. Fourth one's with Penelope Cruz. Yeah. The third one is still Davy Jones, but I think I, I yeah they're in, and then uh, Jeffrey Rush comes back to life. He's brought back to life at the end of the second one. That's and right. He's like a, a major player in the third one. That's right. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's I, I've seen all four to this to date, and yeah, they they're not they're not pretty. Yeah, I think of obviously of the two I've seen, it's obviously the worst because it made me say no, I don't want to watch any of those other ones. Um, mm. But I think it's it's interesting seeing how, despite the fact that creatively that model only really sustained a single film it has become the new default or it became for a while the new default Brookheimer model of a film, which was kind of big, expensive fantasy film with a supporting character who was kind of lively and, and kind of was allowed to be a bit more eccentric in their performance. You can really see that in Prince of Persia, Sons of Time, where Alfred Molina plays that part as kind of a rerun of the role that John Reese davies played in the Indiana Jones films. You can see it in... Bad uh, Dates. That's, <laughs> my, that's my impression of Salah. Or no, what's not, his name? Salah? Yeah, Salah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. not bad. Uh, yeah. You can see that. Indy, you're digging in the wrong place. <laughs> is, that, is that any better? You, you'd have the correct mixture of uh, kind of 
uh, Arabic and Welsh. Welsh, yeah. yeah, that's what I was going for. But uh, you also see it in the Sorcerer's Apprentice, where the hero of that film is uh, Jay Baruchel, but the supporting character who kind of drives everything is Nicolas Cage at his kind of daft, the most daft. Uh, that's also, I believe, the last time that he's worked with Bruckheimer because that film didn't do so well to uh, mm. re-establish the pattern of him just kind of cutting people out of his life. And then obviously, The Lone Ranger has that with Johnny Depp, where. He's obviously the the Tonto character is there to kind of add flavour to the slightly bland uh, lead character, and uh, I think it, it's uh, interesting to see how he has the uh, the commercial kind of nous to know when he's found a formula that works, yet he has been completely unable to make that formula work in like the six or seven times he's tried it since. Mm. Yeah, Lone Ranger, I mean, we discussed it on the, the end of year cast for a couple of years ago, how, you know, it got a bad rap because it had so many problems and didn't do particularly well, but the film is way too weird and strange to be considered bad, but then nowhere near good enough uh, to be considered good. Yeah, I think it's, I think his his relationship with his directors is quite interesting because he certainly seems to give them a lot of room to, you know, try their own thing. Like certainly with Gorb Verbinski, I think because they had made three hugely successful films together, he felt willing to kind of fight for him to, you know, destroy trains and to spend however much that one cost, uh, 200 and something million. But, mm. uh, and I think you can see that in a lot of the films that don't work. It's clearly because he's just let his the directors kind of, you know, have their hand in it. But, uh, I think the he he is, seems to be someone who's very willing to take a risk, but also very willing to you know walk away when it becomes apparent that uh, the risk didn't pay off. Mm. Um, so that's his most successful. What is Jerry Bruckheimer's worst film? And and you know we probably could close our eyes and stick a pin in his filmography and have a pretty decent chance of uh, hitting a stinker. But what are we going to say is, I think it kind of, it probably has to be Pearl Harbor. I don't mean to be disrespectful. I just think that, well, I, it is reckless and irresponsible if you're just doing it to be a show-off, but I was doing it to try to inspire the men, sir, in the way that you've inspired me. I believe the French even have a word for that, when the men get together to honor their leaders. They call it an homage, sir. A what? An homage, sir. That's bullshit, Macaulay! <laughs> but it's very, very good bullshit. Thank you, sir. You know, you talked about the kind of airplane-style parody. Mm-hmm. Um, if Pearl Harbor was a parody of those kind of, like, stiff upper lip, uh, we can do it, World War Two Men on a Mission films, it might be kind of a really subtle comedy, <laughs> but it isn't. It's, it's so straight-faced and, yeah, just hits literally every single bum note it, it possibly can. And I think something that's uh, interesting in his back catalogue is he will occasionally make kind of plays for uh, awards recognition. Um, Mm. Like you could see that, I think the same year or maybe the year afterwards, he was behind Black Hawk Down, which was a film that I think did actually get nominated for a bunch of Oscars and and was kind of very critically well liked. Uh, And I think in the case of Pearl Harbor, I think that was a, a case of him trying to make a film that was in the Titanic mold. You know, it's a big sweeping historical epic. There's a romance. It takes place around a real life tragedy. But the uh, the application of his his style and, and Michael Bay's style 
you end up with this, you know, incredibly crass and you said it deeply offensive approach to the material that uh, ended up being, you know, it, it wasn't entirely rejected by audience because I think it still made a lot of money, but it didn't make as much money as they hoped. And obviously it didn't uh, find favor with the, uh, with the Academy. Mm. And it was something that like, I mean, you mentioned Titanic there. I mean, you can probably get away with making a film with huge action sequences based around a tragedy that happened in real life. If the tragedy was far enough removed from, you know, happening like Titanic sank in like the 1500s or some shit. And like, no one's going to remember that, but world war two, like, you know, your grandma's still alive and she was around then. I mean, she wasn't at Pearl Harbor granted, but you know, it, it just, it's just really distasteful when you, when you kind of put things like kind of money shots of like bomb bombs, eye view camera angles in a film in which, you know, people have living relatives who have survived that horror. It's not the, like, you talk about sensitive ways to approach material. Uh, Black Hawk Down, you mentioned there, made by the same producer, a different director. You, you could very well uh, level accusations of uh, it being war pornography at that film, but that is a much more sensitive way to tackle that material than than Pearl Harbor was. Given that, and when I say sensitive, I'm, I'm not saying that it is in any way a sensitive film, politically or culturally, um, but I'm saying that it, they shot it like it's really happening rather than stylizing the violence to the point of trying to make it more entertaining. Yeah, and the uh, and, and kind of the thing with Black Hawk Down is it's a, a very visceral film and, and it is in, it's intended to create recreate the chaos of being in that situation. Whereas, uh, and it, they pretty much drop you in it straight away, whereas Pearl Harbor has long stretches of introducing you to these people who are about to die horribly and they kind of play it out as being really in that style of the grand Hollywood romances and things like that. Mm. And it all comes off as a bit distasteful. And also in the case of, if you're comparing it with Titanic, it's slightly different, obviously, because Titanic was an accident and, you know, and, and it came from... Or Hugh, was but, it? I suppose, can't melt, melt steel beams. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, open your um, eyes, open your eyes, sheeple. <laughs> um, but you know so i think that there's a there's a fundamental difference there in terms of uh taking a film that's based on something that was kind of just a freak occurrence and, and, and an accident and you know maybe emerged from hubris and things like that to a case of a sneak attack being launched on people you know it's kind of in the same way that you you have a kind of a bunch of films that come out in recent years that have tried to be about people experiencing 9-11 you have stuff like uh extremely loud and incredibly close or remember me the one with uh robert pattinson where it doesn't reveal that it's about 9-11 until like the last 10 minutes where it's it just comes across as super crass if you try and tell these kind of romantic stories or these kind of quirky stories around a real life tragedy because it feels as if you're really cheapening the tragedy by just saying yeah this is just kind of happening in the background of this other thing we're doing mm. yeah and this thing is quite kind of schmaltzy and bullshitty because i mean that is like ben affleck at that point was at the kind of start of the benefit curse it was kind of around then i think his performance is kind of so kind of chisel jawed to the point of he's literally playing a chiseled jaw with no discernible personality or, or kind of character and it's like that for every single every single person in the film yeah i think that's that's definitely the beginning of it because then you go 
I think maybe two, two, two or three years later, you get Gigli and the absolute nadir of it all mm. and paycheck uh, and all these sort of things. And it's certainly not a, a high point for him. No. But uh, I think uh, he, go on, sorry. I was just saying, like, commercially, I think that was probably an early peak for him because he'd just coming off of uh, Goodwill Hunting. I was about to say Goodwill and Grace. Um, good, Goodwill Hunting was obviously his kind of big thing that made him a, a big star and he bit starred in um, Armageddon and things like that. But then very quickly after that, things just completely soured for him and he was on the outs for, for eight or nine years. Yeah, but how he's bounced back, Ed. Um, well done, Mr. Affleck, but then he's kind of ruining it again by being Batman. So, you yeah, know, we he... talked about it before, didn't we, with people getting acclaim and then doing superhero films. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't win an Oscar and then and then be Batman. Yeah, go to Sundance with something. Yeah. Go to Sundance with your Batman film. Mm, yeah. Or take Aquaman to Sundance like they do in Entourage, the TV show. <laughs> it's the most unlikely thing that's ever happened. Anyway... Uh, so that's his worst film. I suppose we're going to get to to the uh, the kind of finale uh, of this episode uh, and talk about Jerry Bruckheimer's best film, of which we are kind of compromising a little bit. But I'm sure if you hear us out, you'll you'll let us have it. Uh, we're picking two films, aren't we? Yes. Uh, the first of which is uh, Thief, directed by Michael Mann. He was moving my merchandise, sort of money in his pocket when he went out the window. Is my money. This is a plating company. What are you telling me to shit? Shit? I want my money. Hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Mr. Frank, uh, Lala, whatever. Some guy died? Yes. Your state goes to probate. Take it to probate court. What do you bug me with this? Mm, which is one of those films I mentioned earlier. You'd be like, what? Jerry Bruckheimer produced Thief? Never. But he did. And Thief's amazing. And, uh... We've talked about it on the alternate 100 and talked about it several times before. It's a, it's a remarkably kind of like lean and, and mean uh, crime thriller, which anyone familiar with Michael Mann's work know that he does quite well. And also people who are familiar with sort of the themes of Jay Bruckheimer's work. Like when you if you don't know that he produced it and then you hear it, you kind of think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Because it's all uh, about masculinity and, and ideas of... Uh, of manhood and kind of the relationships between criminals, which is uh, something that pops up in a lot of his work. Mm. But I mean, in Thief, the director takes the time to explore those issues and perhaps make a statement about them. Whereas in Bruckheimer's other films in the hands of lesser directors, they just show you those issues (laughs) um, and that's it. It just happens. But we won't kind of talk too much about Thief because we've talked about it a lot in the past, but we're going to pick Jerry Bruckheimer's best Jerry Bruckheimer film. Um, by which we mean one big kind of egregious action film. And what we're going to pick for that? We're going to pick Conair. Define irony. Bunch of idiots dancing on a plane to a song made famous by a band that died in a plane crash. Which is genuinely, genuinely a brilliant film. Um, it, it's probably the most enjoyable of that run. Yeah, because as much as it is ostensibly uh, a kind of a match, uh, macho action movie with uh, kind of yeah, it's high concept and it's a it's a it's a film in which she's based entirely around a pun, which <laughs> you know must have been come up with, you know, at three a.m. and they thought it was a good idea and made a film out of it. But it's a film in which. 
just seems to work somehow because I mean the director didn't go on to do much else. I think he directed the Lara Croft Tomb Raider movie. He's a British guy, isn't he? Simon West is his yeah. name. Is that right? Most um, most recently directed, I believe, the third event uh, 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 Expendables film. Wow, there you go. So that's pedigree. So he, he just kind of did that. But like you get the impression if you watch it, that it's got an amazing cast of of kind of char- character actors and 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 uh, other such people that they got everyone in. And all the actors said to them in the meeting, this sounds like utter shit. Um, <laughs> but I tell you what, I'll do it if you stick a zero on the end of the paycheck and you let me have some fun with it. Because everyone in that movie is having a fucking blast. And I think it helps that it was very early on in Nick Cage's progression to being Nick Cage. Mm. You know, he he hadn't quite become the director dvd action walking star. Meme. yeah he hadn't become yeah the walking meme uh that he has become now he was you, you know he was really only two years removed from winning an oscar for leaving las vegas and he was still someone who i think was was kind of this fiery presence in films of of a lower budget so he'd only done the rock a few years before and so that was still kind of an outlier for him mm. so the idea of putting Nick Cage as the as the lead of a kind of big, bombastic, utterly ridiculous Jerry Bruckheimer action film was still, you know, kind of a fresh thing. And I think he does, uh, he relishes the opportunity to play a character who is, uh, you know, the least despicable person on a plane full of despicable people. Mm. Con Air is a film which uh, gets away with, I'm not, it, it does this, but it, not only that's bad, but it also gets away with it. It gets away with having uh, Steve Buscemi's character, uh, a character called Garland Green, who is a uh, serial killer, mm-hmm. who at one point says that he drove 20 miles in a car wearing a girl's head as a hat. Uh, so we're talking kind of like Je- Jeffrey Dahmer-level uh, psychopath. It gets away with making that character, A, believable comic relief, uh, <laughs> and B... Like one of the show, one of the film's only sympathetic characters. Um, yeah. At the yeah. end, he escapes and he goes to a casino, and you're like, yeah, "Fucking right on, <laughs> amazing!" <laughs> he's he's out and he's having a great time. You're like, "Whoa, hang on, did you remember that you said he wore that person's like head as a hat? Because that's fucking disgusting." Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely crazy that that character is is a in a <laughs> a kind of very mainstream action movie, and that you come away thinking. I really like that guy. Yeah. He was, he was he misunderstood. Was really, he was misunderstood. He had a good line about Leonard Skinnerd, you know, so that's, that's, that's all you kind of take away from it. Not the horrible thing, the things that he's done. Yeah. He does have a good joke about Leonard Skinnerd. I'd forgotten about that, but yeah, every, everyone in that film is, is, is a kind of hardened kind of horrible criminal or seems to get out of it. Like John Malkovich's character, he, he is chewing up the scenery, uh, with relish and, uh, loving every minute of it. Cause, uh, it comes across as just a huge fun film, even though it is, like we say, ridiculous. It is ridiculous in the best possible way because everyone else, everyone in the film and everyone behind the camera knows it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think that's probably the uh, the peak of Bruckheimer's commercial instincts and also the high concept thing, that it's a very simple idea that obviously left a lot of room for people to really play around with it. Um, mm. in, in the case of someone like Malkovich, again, that was someone who in 1997 don't think you would really think of him as someone who would play the villain in a very kind of big loud action movie but 
it works because he's not the sort of person that you would have as the villain in a big loud action movie. Mm. You know, he's able to do things that are very surprising and interesting in a way that uh, they wouldn't be, you know, sort of now when he's done that a few times around, but at the time it, it felt very fresh and, and new. Mm. And he's even like got um, John Cusack and, and uh, Cole Meany as the kind of the good guys as it were, who just like constantly antagonize each other and, Cole Meany's car is his most prized possession and he just kind of everyone keeps wrecking it and like there's loads of like comedic touches for everyone everyone in it what I'm trying to say is everyone in it pretty much gets some good business and it's uh, a weird kind of like mega budget action ensemble absurdist comedy Uh, yeah I think it it does seem like it was the sort of film where the, the idea was just so thin that there was so much room to kind of colour in around the margins that it was pretty much all margins at a certain point. Mm. <laughs> it's like there's, there's the very, very thin central concept of the title and the pun uh, yeah. in which everyone just had as much room as they wanted to just go crazy. And uh, the results actually work because the the story is so is so simple and straightforward that there is just lots of opportunities for ridiculousness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also have that film to blame and hold it responsible for any sniggering at Oscar Isaac's character name in the new Star Wars film because his name is uh, Poe Dameron. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and Nicolas Cage's character in Con Air is called Cameron Poe. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, that makes me kind of giggle. Uh, the idea that perhaps J.J. Abrams is a massive Con Air fan <laughs> and he's trying to sneak in references. Uh, and obviously because it's Star Wars, they'll be embedded in the culture and forever remembered. And you know, oh. one day he'll say, you know, it's like Indiana was the name of the dog. Mm. I named it after Nick Cage. Uh, it'll be one I, of those I, questions. I hope there's a scene in The Force Awakens where, you know, he just tells someone to put the bunny down. Put or, the bunny down. Or, or whatever the Star Wars equivalent of a stuffed bunny is. Yeah. There's no character called Cyrus the Virus in uh, The Force Awakens, which is regrettable. There should be. That should be Adam Driver's character. <laughs> mm, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, Thief on paper, best film. Con Air as a Bruckheimer adventure, probably his best. I do have a soft spot for The Rock. I think that's kind of fun. But, yeah, it doesn't have quite the comedic touch that Con Air has. Although it does end with that bit where he's like, he, he finds that microfilm with all the government secrets on it, and the last line of the film is, Hey, honey, do you want to find out who killed Kennedy? Which <laughs> I always thought was quite a subversive message to put in to a mainstream, very militaristic, militaristic film made by you know people who are generally just interested in, in, in guns and, and kind of uh, irresponsible violence. Yeah, I think it, in terms of if you want to kind of get the uh, kind of the essence of Bruckheimer's style than Con Air is, is kind of the one that I think probably best uh, elucidates it before before uh, that style kind of founded in the early 2000s and he started kind of looking around for another model that didn't really work. If you look mm. at his his work from the 90s through, through Bad Boys, The Rock, Con Air, Armageddon, all of those ones in a row, that's, that's kind of the point at which he was, uh, his style was, kind of at its most effective. Mm. Yeah. And, and now that's it, the most enjoyable of them is Con Air because it, it knows how ridiculous it is. Mm. He, he sometimes proves himself to be a very opportunistic uh, producer as well in the sense that like when the Da Vinci Code was like super popular, he was like, 
I will just make national treasure. Just kind <laughs> of uh, like imagine the Da Vinci Code, but like with Nicolas Cage in it and just some stuff in there about the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln and that. And then they got a writer to knock it out in a weekend and they filmed it. And somehow they were so really super popular. Yeah. And somehow they haven't made more of them, which is Well, yeah, crazy. maybe it's the Nick, Nick Cage thing. I mean, I saw a Nick Cage national treasure book of secrets thing. It's called the second one. And uh, you, know, you see those videos going around that kind of like super montages of Nicolas Cage losing his shit. Mm-hmm. There is an amazing one in um, National Treasure 2, which you never see in there, where he does it with a British accent. I've heard that. It was uh, it was highlighted on the old Adam and Joe show when they used to have a feature about incredibly insane accents in films. Mm, yeah, it um, is unbelievable. Where he starts uh, shouting about a man getting his whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he's going, figgy pudding, <laughs> and just, just screaming <laughs> British things, or things that Nicolas Cage in that moment thought were British. And it's, uh, oh, here comes a Bobby. It wouldn't have looked out of place in Wee Britain in uh, Arrested Development. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it's quite something. I'd, uh, you know, wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but seeing that scene, definitely so. So yeah, that's Jerry Bruckheimer in a nutshell. Uh, and yeah, like Ed said, it's uh, number seven in our artist profiles. Who's number eight, Ed? Uh, number eight, we'll be going back to our tried and tested area of actors, or particularly actress, we're going to talk about uh, the great Betty Davis. Yes, which will give us, at least give us a chance to rewatch some of her cool stuff and uh, give me an opportunity to investigate some of the stuff that I perhaps haven't seen or heard of. A uh, very interesting uh, lady uh, who had an acerbic line or two. Yes, absolutely, and someone who uh, had the complete kind of Hollywood career of being at one point a massive star and at another point uh, considered box office poison. Mm, Yeah, and (laughs) taking out an advert in the Hollywood Reporter or whatever it was to uh, say that she still exists and is available for work. (laughs) But we'll get into that because she's a fascinating person and an amazing actress. Um, So that'll be in a few weeks' time. We'll be back next week with something different. If you've enjoyed this show, then please subscribe and leave us a nice little review. If you would, find us on Twitter, find us on Facebook, all that good stuff. And yeah, uh, we'll be back with something next week, uh, something altogether different. Uh, But until then, it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.